There's some anthros in this house. There's some anthros in this house. There's some anthros in this house. Hi, everyone. I'm Melissa. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am a PhD student in cultural anthropology, currently self-quarantining. And if you couldn't tell by the intro to this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about dance hall, about WAP, and respectability. <laughs> oh, well, um, hi, I'm Brendan. I am a PhD candidate in anthropology. My pronouns are also she, her, hers. And yeah, I just moved into my new place. My body hurts. Everything hurts. But I look forward to decorating. That's basically what I look forward to doing. <laughs> Excellent. Have you been looking up all of the all of the different design design ideas and things that you want to buy? Girl, everything is sold out. Like people, it's back to school slash mm. um, everyone's working from home. So like all these things, all the stores are sold out. Ikea is sold out, Value City Furniture, like everything that order is on backlog. So house is empty basically until like mid-September. Oh no, <laughs> so that's wild. About. I mean, I've heard that Ikea looks like the apocalypse right now. Like, <laughs> and I mean, I've been thinking definitely- about... I've been thinking about ordering a bed and obviously it's just going to take too long to come. So I was just like, forget it. It's fine. Yeah. Like for, for me, it's just like, yo, I need this stuff so I could actually do the things I said I was going to do in my life. And it seems like it's just not possible. So yeah, um, we'll see. I, I don't like living like this though. Um, it's not, it's not cool. It's not cool. But no. my necessities are here, which matters most. Like you know about the whole debacle about getting my stuff here. So oh, yes. At yeah. least the, the the bare necessities are here. Um, but I, all the other things I need, I just I guess I have to practice my patience, which is hard. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> you so. never wanted to <laughs> No, I did no, I was getting ready to ask you. <laughs> So, how was your weekend? I heard it was pretty special. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, Dee and I went up to Lake George. And we were thinking this is going to be a nice getaway. You know, finally leave the city because I I haven't left New York since probably last October. Mm. Yeah. So, we I mean, we were planning on going to Columbia in March. But then because of all of the COVID stuff, that didn't happen. And then, of course, because I'm worried about my visa and all of this stuff, I didn't want to leave the country in, in case I wouldn't be able to come back. So finally, we settled on going to Lake George. We booked everything. We stayed at a ranch. Um, and, you know, we, we went horseback riding and did some cute stuff but the thing that we were just not prepared for was the trump right situation yes they're everywhere up there they're everywhere up there though like outside of the city especially in new york and like pennsylvania they're every they're everywhere yeah i mean we counted i think so we we just kind of started counting and and you know we counted um i think three blue lives matter flags and um, maybe four Trump 2020 Mm-mm. paraphernalia. So like shirts and someone was wearing a face mask. And <laughs> we were both thinking Mm-mm. about the irony of having a Trump 2020 face mask because 
you literally would think that he's Trump the reason why I, <laughs> right. <aren't wearing> <laughs> but, um, he's the reason why we're stuck yeah. in this mess anyway yeah mm. and then and then the day we were driving back to new york we we stopped in saratoga springs to have lunch and it was the complete opposite it was black lives matter signs everywhere and it's literally just half an hour away from from lake george and so there were black lives matter signs and all people welcome everyone welcome and and all of these kinds of things you know they had like vegan restaurants and, <laughs> and it was just a more i don't know it's that's, I don't know yeah, how to say like, <laughs> it was just a like, totally different place. Like Lake George, all of their restaurants were like American food and, you know, pizza and burgers and you get the odd, you know, nice restaurant. But a lot of it was very French food or Italian food. And so mm -hmm. the way that I described it was this seems like the kind of place that people who are kind of like class traveling think that upper middle class people would vacation and so that's wow. like that's where they go um so you know they they think that like eating this italian american food is more refined and all of these kinds of things so it was it was an interesting place to go to well i'm glad that y'all had a good time you look good horseback riding so i was like wow hey. you was looking good i was like okay i see you hair out <laughs> out here on the horse i have avoided riding horses with all of the excuses so um, it, was, it was actually really fun i was scared to begin with but um mm -hmm. once we got going i i actually really enjoyed it and i was like why aren't we trotting come on let's go a little faster because you know <laughs> they kind of just walk you along a path mm -hmm. along a trail but you know they was smell bad um only only when they were pooping <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, see, that's my other thing. I'm like, and they just keep walking. They just like head. walk. They walk and drop. <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> just walk and drop. Mm -mm. It was so that was interesting. But D loves horses, so I was happy that you know we got to do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know I'm so cute. Wow. But anywho, <laughs> uh, before we get too sentimental, let's get into the podcast, y'all. Welcome, welcome to Zora's daughters. Alyssa and Brendan in the house, the ooh, anthros ooh. in the house, <laughs> anthros in the house. Yes, that, um, will, that will become more relevant later. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, all right. Well, since we're anthropologies and anthropologists, one of the things people are probably thinking about is like, you know, how is this podcast really anthropology? Um, I mean, so a lot of people really associate anthropology with bones or like doing archaeology at least that's what i get so they're like oh do you dig things up and i'm like no i'm a cultural mm. anthropologist or they think of it as this very colonial form where you know that very colonial form of anthropology where you're going into some uncontacted tribe and you're you know noting down all of their rituals and kinship and all of those kinds of things so you know this this format might, might not necessarily be something that people would associate with anthropology so i'm going to ask that dreaded question that every Americanist anthropologist <laughs> gets, especially if you're studying black folks. Yep. Okay, yep. Well, you know, what, what do you think makes this anthropology? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, I guess I could just start with where I entered anthropology and then see if that helps answer the question. So I encountered anthropology for the first time as one of Lee Baker's students my sophomore year. Um, he is, if you're an anthro nerd, you know who Lee Baker is. Um, he's one of my favorite people in the world. And 
he really took us through, it was called Anthropology of Race. And he really focused a lot on blackness though, um, and anthropology's role in defining blackness and defining what makes a person black. Um, and that really helped me as a poor black girl from South Carolina understand why I experienced the world the way that I did, why mm -hmm. I experienced the racism, the classism, the sexism that was just deeply ingrained in my childhood. Um, and it really opened up my understanding of violence as well, too. And so mm -hmm. this podcast, is, as an example of an anthropological tool, at least in my imagination, is one that allows us to make sense of the world through all of these different structures. Like as anthropologists, we're concerned about the social, mm -hmm. the in-between. We talked about liminality last podcast, right? These in-between spaces, these undefined spaces. And we're not necessarily trying to make sense of them in a sociological sense where we're like, okay, classifying them in order to put them into categories to do mm -hmm. something with it. We're literally just saying, how is the world the way that it is and what happens because of this? Mm -hmm. um, and so in this podcast, like we do that, like we take all these different readings and we say, okay, how can we look look at this particular thing through the lens of this particular um, theory or, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so in anthropology, though, typically we're seen, as you mentioned, like as a discipline that examines and defines culture and then using that to define the other with the capital O, which is usually a non-white person in mm -hmm. a foreign country, right? as you said. Uh, and so what we're doing here, which is what I think um, is really useful. And also after our namesake, Zora Neale Hurston, she calls it um, taking off the tight fitting chemise of our own cultures. Mm. So sometimes we're so unable to see what makes things that are familiar to us strange or cultural. And so I think we really do a good job of like peeling that back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I really just think we do a good job of peeling that back. Absolutely. Yes. The familiar, making the familiar strange. I mean, mm -hmm. people have also problematized that phrase, but it's still something that, that I hold in kind of in my mind as I do my work is, you know, if I am familiar with something, I try to ask myself questions about why things are the way that they are. So I actually, I actually studied uh, psychology in undergrad and it took me four years, but by the end of it, I was just like, nah, this ain't it. This ain't it. <laughs> see that though like I you know sometimes you be asking me questions and I'm like hmm this sound like somebody who knows a little psychology mm. I mean yeah it used to freak my family out because you know mental health and mental illness and in, in the black community but especially in in the Jamaican mm. community is, is something mm. else so uh anytime I used to say anything to my mom or something she'd be like don't psychologize me <laughs> But anyway, so I mean, so psychology was something that, you know, by the end of it, I realized it's, it's weird. And so weird is this acronym that people use to describe the way that participants in, in psychology, they're over, overwhelmingly Western educated from industrialized, rich and democratic countries. So that's what weird stands for. And so you have these people generalizing about humanity as a whole from the from this like completely non-representative group of people that makes up 12% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, wait, all of these, not all, but a lot of psychologists, they're basing their their conclusions on doing research with undergraduates. So 
for, so for, for myself, I would get class credit. I would get credit for my course uh, for going and participating in someone's study. <laughs> and so that's basically where they get a lot of, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these theories. And so when I was like trying to go back to graduate school, I was just like, well, what were some of the most influential texts or some of the most, um, you know, insightful things that I've read and they weren't in psychology, they were in sociology. Um, and I had run, read one uh, ethnography <laughs> and um, by a Caribbeanist anthropologist. And I actually worked with him in my master's doing for, for my master's research. So that oh, was flex great. On us. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> flex on us real quick. <laughs> hey, no, it was, it was fantastic. Um, so for me, the, the strength of anthropology is looking at the particular and theorizing about how that influences and is influenced by these global and structural forces. Um, and because we also aim to spend these extended periods of time with people, you know, it's not the shotgun form of shotgun mm-hmm. form of research. You know, um, I really think that that gives you a lot more insight and connection to the people that that you're working with or the group that you are a part of and speaking about. So, yeah. So for us in this podcast, I think that the one experience that both of us have spent a lifetime with is being black and female. So mm-hmm. we are our own ethnographic data. I'm an expert in my own experience and, you know, we're taking ourselves and other black women seriously as theorists of, you know, our lives and of our worlds. And I think that's super, that's super key to what makes this podcast anthropological. Right. And we're like pushing it back against these ideas that your own life can't be ethnographic data or even quote unquote scientific data. Mm-hmm. And like we think about a lot of Black feminist principles, it's, it's rooted in not just the self, but a theorizing of the self, a theorizing mm-hmm. of your experiences that moves away from what people would call um, these Western forms of objectivity, which say that you as a researcher have to stand outside of whatever you're researching in order for it to be valid. And I am like, that's not true for anything that you do, but it's especially not true for us as Black women. Um mm-hmm we are never allowed to really stand apart from our blackness, our womanhood in order to study something. It all is, it, it is always almost mm-hmm. always a part of us in some way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel think, like, yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that we see a lot of people doing now after the reflexive turn is, you know, stating their positionality and, it almost just becomes this thing set apart or set aside from what it is that they do. They're just like, I'm just letting you, letting you know that I am this person. And so people might have been affected or influenced by the, by this way that I walk in the world. Whereas it's like, it almost, for us, it almost doesn't need to be stated. It's just, it's just always there. It isn't something that's set apart from the work that we do and the things that we write. It is, I want to say entangled. <laughs> Yo, <laughs> it is yeah, entangled I mean, with everything that we do at all at all times, and so there isn't necessarily this this need to like separate it out from the research that we do. Right, and uh, for at least for me, I think of research as something that has a purpose and a use. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, research is not necessarily just something that I'm interested in, but it has either like a political project attached to it, especially, I mean, obviously the work that I do now for my dissertation, 
So it's mm-hmm. just like, you know, I'm not trying to study the world just to be like, okay, this is the world. Like my work is to make the world better. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of, I mean, and it's like a blessing and a curse, I think for a lot of black researchers, right? We, mm-hmm. we do work that matters to us deeply, but also this work matters to us deeply. And it is like steeped into trying to change the world around us. And for a lot of black folks, we feel like we can't study just no interest, right? Like I can't just study why the sky is blue um, (laughs) because I'm interested in it. Like I, it has to have some kind of political attachment to it. Mm -hmm. And I think we're moving away from that in some circles, but I think a lot of us are still politically charged because of course this world needs to change. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and who else is going to do it? But us, like we've learned who else (laughs) um, is going to do that that work. That is something that we're going to come back to later as well um, in our uh, What in the World segment. But yeah, I mean, if if anybody out there is ever told that like your personal experience is not valid as data because it's anecdotal evidence, as people like to say, oh, that's anecdotal. Oh, they love to just, do that. They love to throw that out there. Just be like, mm-hmm. just be like objectivity is an ideal that emerges from a white Eurocentric subjectivity. So they were just sitting there and they were like, hmm, what could make the world or make my information seem more important? Oh, objectivity. Well, objectivity is something that comes from somebody's own personal experience and ideas and understandings of the world. So everything is subjective. Literally, someone had to decide if how how many times to repeat an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And someone had to decide that that was not an objective decision. It was like, okay, three times sounds enough. Why not? Why not five times? Why not seven times? Like mm-hmm. all these things that we think of as scientific and then of as true because of you know a lot of philosophers in the Enlightenment period and blah 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 told us so. Um, I really actually constructed and can change. Um, And so I think changing the way that we think about objectivity and subjectivity will allow us to embrace bodies of knowledge created, especially by Black people and especially by Black women, um, without having to do this justification work all the time, Mm -hmm. right, of why we are doing that. But that's, I feel like that's a conversation for another time. (laughs) I think think it was good to get that out there. (laughs) So... I think we're going to go ahead and get to our word because I'm I'm pumped. Like today's episode, y'all, me too. to my me too. whole spirit, my whole spirit. So we're going to go to our next segment, which is called What's the Word? And Alyssa, what's the word for today? All right. Our word today is respectability. So respectability politics that started as a philosophy like promoted by black elites to quote, you know, uplift the race. And they believe that conforming to mainstream standards of behavior and appearance would protect them from systemic racism and prejudice. Mm. So I think that's a word that, you know, we hear, we hear kind of thrown around a lot these days. Right. These days, especially, I think as we move into this election season Mm -hmm. and the middle of, you know, this uprising when people are trying to figure out what's a, a quote unquote good form of protest versus a quote unquote bad form of protest. Yes, respectability is the word for the moment. Um, and I know that we both have experiences growing up with that. So I'm going to just ask mm-hmm. you, like, how 
where have you experienced this in your own life and thinking about, or what is your relationship really mm. to respectability? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been everywhere in my life. My, my relationship to respectability is strong. I think I, I said to you and some of our colleagues, um, you know, that <laughs> during some of these, you know, these conversations that we'd been having, um, just that I'm not used to being the, the troublemaking black right like <laughs> i'm very mm -hmm. used to being the good black and it's you know obviously it's something that i myself am working on and thinking through but i grew up black in canada the child of jamaican immigrants and even though we didn't really call it respectability you know adhering to a politics of respectability was really was really important it was i was very much encouraged to adhere to that um you know if i used slang my mom would be like don't talk ghetto <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I always felt very encouraged to, uh, you know, to be like deferential to authority, to not be too loud, not to take up too much space and not to dress in a certain way. Um, and so in my early teens, when I kind of started to rebel against this, uh, that was that was when, you know, my mom and I really started to clash as a lot of mothers and daughters do. Um, in the well, I know part. I definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And definitely. I mean, it's still so it's still something that's always in the back of my mind that if I act the right way or speak the right way or dress the right way, then I won't be treated negatively. I won't, I won't experience prejudice in the same way and things like that. So it's, it's all an unlearning as, as we say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say for my own, my own experiences, um, we were, we were poor. Black people. And so there were certain things that like, I feel like as someone who was identified as gifted early on, so like kindergarten or whatever, I was kind of thrust into this social learning of this is what good students, good people do. Mm -hmm. And this kind of like class training that I wasn't getting at home. Um, my mother is, a sh is the strong Black woman. Like she... <laughs> does not play any games. Like I remember being younger and her, like she would just show up to the school and demand to speak to whoever she needed to speak to if something was going on with me, my sister, my brother. And like, this was before, you know, a lot of the school shootings and bombings and things like that. But she would like literally show up and be like, I will blow this place up if you do not show, <laughs> like take me to who I need to talk to. Um, and so it became so much so that like when I would just say, oh, I need to talk to my mother, that people were like, oh, please do not, do not um, call your mom. Like things are fine. We will work it out. Um, and so she's always been like a, a fire in that way and always just loved us deeply. But yeah, it was not a very respectable woman in that sense, like mm -hmm. class wise or even like she would just wear whatever she wanted to wear she my mom was very intelligent and so she has some college education and so she knew how to like talk in certain spaces when she needed to talk but she also knew how to like wield her anger mm -hmm. and her like language whenever she wanted to um but we were never chastised at least as far as i can remember for talking ghetto i used to get a lot of <laughs> flack for talking the way that i talk um like my family assumed for the longest that i didn't have any black friends <laughs> Which, if you know me, you're like, what? <laughs> like, 
they assumed that I was going to be married to a white man. And, uh-huh. and you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, whenever I would say, oh, I have a boyfriend when I was younger, I'd be like, I have a boyfriend. The first question would be like, oh, is he white? <laughs> and and, and, it, and of course not. Um, and it would be just one of those things where it was just like, because I was put into, you know, Marcus Smart, I was thrust into these circles. Um but it was, which was very different from my family background of just mm-hmm. kind of like we see well a certain type of respectability that's marked by the church, which right. I think is like a different, which can be class, but it's just different um, in certain ways. But yeah, that's so interesting to hear the <laughs> difference between like a particular type of African-American respectable experience Mm -hmm. um, and like a Jamaican immigrant experience. Um, Vast blackness is so vast. Like, yes. (laughs) And it's just so interesting. Um, Yeah. I mean, I mean, ours was very much marked by education. So it was like, get those grades in school. My mom Mm -hmm. was a fantastic about, you know, putting us in the extra, in the right quote unquote, you know, the right extracurriculars. Um, So we, my brother and I, we did piano lessons. That didn't stick. I did Taekwondo for a little bit. <laughs> that didn't really stick. Ooh. But one of the things, I mean, when I was a little, little kid. <laughs> oh, I was um, about to say, let me find out you could whoop some ass out here. <laughs> well, I can't. I, I wrestled in university, so, you know. Oh, yeah. I got I like a list of people who need um, <laughs> who need some reckonings. Um. <laughs> But uh, no, I use my powers for good. But um, but one of the things that my mom would not let slide unless it was due to a financial issue. Um, but we were almost always up until I think I was in grade nine. We were in Kumon, which is um, I was just doing math. Oh, my the brother learning did, is that the yeah. learning? Yeah, thing? my brother did yes. math and English. I did math. Um, and it basically accelerates you in math and makes you really good at um, doing mental math. So to this day, I'm fantastic at, at you know the the more simple stuff. But by the time I was in grade seven, I was doing like grade ten, grade eleven math, and so um, academics was really really important and getting good grades um, was was integral. But it was it's interesting that you you know bring up this kind of this this difference between the experience of Af- African-American and Jamaican immigrant respectability. And so in the 1960s in anthropology, um, you know, res- respectability and reputation became something that was a structuring principle of the Caribbean, especially in Jamaican, in uh, the Jamaican society. So in 1969, Peter J. Wilson, he wrote an article and he argues that anthropologists of the Caribbean should stop thinking in terms of gender and class as like the structuring principle of society and instead start thinking about reputation and respectability. And those Mm. things are gendered as well. And they carry markers of class, but he said that those concepts are a lot more stable and more common um, throughout the region. And so he kind of felt that like Caribbean ethnographers, they'd been alluding to these ideals, um, you know, particularly in terms of marriage, economic stability. And he also said that, you know, women are very much the carriers of respectability. Um, they uphold the values of the church, you know, similar to what you were saying. And at the same time, men, they live according to value and status, uh, to a value and status system that's based on reputation. So they were like, all right, well, you know, how can I get status through the things that I own and the people that I know and the money that I make? Meanwhile, women are like, I get respect mm-hmm. and status based on how moral I am. Mm-hmm. 
So these ideals are still somewhat in use. Um, I mean, for example, Deborah Thomas, she's an anthropologist at Penn. She works in Jamaica um, and she defines respectability as a value complex that emphasizes education, thrift, industry, self-sufficiency via land ownership, moderate Protestant living, community uplift, the constitution of family through legal marriage and leadership by the educated middle classes. So I think a lot of my first generation Canadian friends will recognize some of these values in their Jamaican parents, um, just like the importance of some of these things. Yeah, I just find that to be really fascinating. Um, yeah, just on like a personal level, because I think about like, like yeah, like women being the holders of morality, mm-hmm. at least growing up in the church in the way that I did, which was non-denominational, but I would say we were much closer to just like Pentecostal than anything else. And like our form of respectability was through morality, but it was like a very strict morality uh, in that sense of just like in a purity, like a pure, like (laughs) P-U-R-I-T-Y. You will not do anything outside of what the Bible says that you should do as a young woman. Now for young boys, which I think we'll get, we will get to that later, but like, the difference, yeah. the gender difference in that, for sure. Mm-hmm. But like to be respectable in that area, you had to, as a young woman, adhere to certain things. Right. Um, and if and even if you appeared to be unholy, then you were unholy. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus, you know, not able to be respected. And so I also, yeah, when you mentioned like dressing a certain way, talking a certain way, being a certain way, um, just the difference for us being that like, we couldn't afford to dress certain ways. Like we had to get our clothes from Goodwill or mm-hmm. had to have the hand-me-downs, had to have a certain things. So I always kind of looked a certain way. Um, and the thing that made me respectable was just the way that I talked, the classes that I took, mm-hmm. being an advanced student. And so like my mother who, I think she trusted the school system because of how well I did. Mm-hmm. Like, um, she trusted that it would treat my brother and my sister in the sim- in a similar way. And so what's really, I wouldn't say tragic, but just sad about that is like, I was identified as gifted. And so I was mm-hmm. sh- like shuffled through these accelerated programs, you know, these reading programs. My sister, she is kind of a middle of the road student. And then my brother like many black boys and girls in public school systems, right, uh, fell victim to the school to prison pipeline Mm -hmm. and um, has been in and out of jail a few times and is is not reading on grade level, Mm -hmm. at least for when he dropped out of high school. And so there, and I'm like getting my PhD. So it's it's just a very vast difference um, as far as like respectability in that sense and largely due to class. And so I recognize respectability to be kind of similar to what you've been saying um, as a politic that Black people believe will allow us to avoid this racial sexual violence um, and allow us access to certain whitened spaces so that we can have access to resources. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, especially um, when slavery was abolished, formerly enslaved Black folks, particularly those who were lighter skinned, um, quote unquote, Creole folks. If you're from that region, my father's um, Creole. Mm -hmm. Um, 
respectability politics allowed them to believe that their behavior, which emulated white society, would allow them to escape the kind of oppressive racist violence, such as lynching or segregation. Right. But, but that's that, not the case. Not, like, <laughs> yeah, <period>. no. <laughs> like, no, like if you had mm-hmm. one drop of black blood, you were black. Um, yeah. And so that was, and sometimes people could pass. And I know passing now is like a, a word that people want to problematize, but mm. I, I still find it useful. Um, sometimes people could pass and gain some of the, advantages of white society, the economic advantages of white society, but for the most part, you couldn't. Um, Mm -hmm. And and one case in particular I think about is like Plessy versus Ferguson and this, you know, this light-skinned black man who's actually, I'm going to use a term here, was called an (laughs) octoroon, which if you're not familiar, means that you are um, one-eighth black. So octo means eight and you're one-eighth black. So his great-grandparent, one of his great-grandparents were black. Um, his name was Homer Plessy. He was sitting on a train and he was actually a member of a group, a Creole group of prominent black um, citizens. And they used him as kind of this test case to test the newly minted laws in Louisiana around segregation. What year so was he, this? 1896. Okay. And so this is like during the reconstruction period, post-slavery. Mm-hmm. So he's this man that if you look at a picture of him, you're like, black, question mark, question mark, <laughs> question mark. But back then, right, like he was black. Yeah. Um, and so these prominent black citizens wanted access to the white car trains because they have better food. You know, mm-hmm. they're better conditions, seats that you could actually enjoy sitting in. And so they wanted to push against these um, segregation laws that would allow them to have access to these cars that they could afford to sit in. But what happened is, you know, homeboy got arrested and they took it to court and it made it to the Supreme Court. And that's actually the Supreme Court was like, actually, these segregation laws are good, right? As long as things are separate but equal, they can be separate. And so we know the legacy of that, of course, which is mm-hmm. segregation and things were anything but equal, um, but they were definitely separate. And so I say, use that as an example to really highlight like class plays a huge role in who can be perceived as respectable. Um, and class was a, a major uh, driver for respectability politics and also for integration because poor black people will almost always be excluded from the realm of respectability mm-hmm. unless they're like me and, and, and they're exceptional. And I've really had to battle with that. And over the course of my life, like my exceptionality and the ways yeah. that I'm allowed access to spaces because people see me as quote unquote, one of the good ones, even mm-hmm. though I always like to shake the table when I get there. Um, <laughs> I am learning from you. I'm learning from you. But it's, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Plessy versus Ferguson because it reminded me of something I had read and you, I just have to tell you all, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> um, but, you know, Rosa Parks wasn't the first woman to be arrested for not sitting at the back of the bus, right? There were other people mm-hmm. who had been arrested in the past, um, other women who had been assaulted for doing the same thing, but they didn't get the same, the movement didn't kind of organize around them in part because they didn't hold the same position in society that Rosa Parks did. Um, one woman, she's a darker skinned woman. So, you know, and Rosa Parks was a light skinned woman who would just simply 
look better would be more respectable on the cover <laughs> of newspapers and in stories um and so you know even even within the community and within activist spaces these kinds of characteristics are still used to kind of push forward what what might be considered more radical agendas right like you know our homeboy W.E.B. Du Bois and his <laughs> his self. Um, he, I mean, I have a lot to say about this man, but what he learned over the course of his life, besides the fact that um, even though he had Dutch ancestry, that white people were still not going to allow him to marry their daughters, that... Um, <laughs> That um <laughs> sorry, I just this, this this is what no, should I say this? This is no, I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> I mean we we're all thinking it, right? Like I think a corollary to thinking about respectability is integration and, and thinking about what integration really allows mm. black men in particular to do. But mm. and I'm gonna I'm going to leave that space open for the listener to figure out what I'm what I'm saying. But basically, like he, you know, he starts out poor, gets his great education, goes to Germany and everywhere he turns, he's like, wow, people are still out here calling me a nigga. And like, what does that really mean? Um, And then he's like, well, what if we fight in NAACP? What if we fight to integrate these places? What if we fight to do this, that and the third? Lives this long time. And then at the end of his life is like, actually, I'm gonna just move to Ghana and be with my be with my people and recognize that this was a failed quote well, okay, failed. I would say that integration did not fail because then of course it did happen. But mm-hmm. this political project that he envisioned of being seen as the same or seen as an equal with his white counterparts, his white mm-hmm. um sociologist right his work was dismissed uh, as not real sociology right. for a very long time even though it, it cemented the way that um black people are talked about in in sociological texts um so like i think about him too as an example of just kind of like respectability politics and i'm sure i'll get some heat, heat for that <laughs> um and how they operate, especially along the lines of, of skin color. And and back to your example about Rosa Parks, like Claudette Col- Colvin, I think is how you pronounce her last name, but the, the darker skinned 14 year old girl who was pregnant, um, who they said could not be a figure in this movement because mm-hmm. of her skin and her unmarried yeah. status. And so the civil rights movement really used, well, certain factions of the civil rights movement really played on respectability politics mm-hmm. To, to do into to integrate spaces and I mean we see that in the movement where you know you have people doing these sit-ins where they're silent and they're peaceful as yeah. white people are literally attacking them mm-hmm. um, and that is supposed to be it's talked about as a sign of strength right um, and in some ways it is but also it is also just you seeing racist violence again in yeah. on people even yeah. as they're literally being as respectable as possible mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i don't i definitely don't want to discount the power of silence i mean especially if you think about like tina camp's work and listening to images um and you know the power of quiet revolution and refusal but there are just some instances where we need to make a mess <laughs> 
like we need to destroy some things. That's um, and so, you know, these, these politics of respectability are often used against black folks to police our behavior. Like, oh, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be this. You shouldn't do this. Don't be ghetto. But it's like, you know, and then that way people will still, they'll treat you with respect and dignity, but it's like people should still have rights and dignity and humanity regardless of their respectability. Like if a girl is darker skinned and 15 years old and pregnant, that shouldn't, why does that mean that she's less deserving of having a seat on the bus? It doesn't. Um, and yeah, like and for black women in particular, like respectability is kind of flexes this shield in a sense, right? Like, oh, if you just act a certain way, talk a certain way, be a certain way, then people won't assault you. And it's like, that's not the truth at all. Like, even as an academic, right? I Mm -hmm. act a certain way, am a certain way, whatever, and still experience sexualized violence in my workplace. Um, And so it's just like, actually, respectability politics are born of this fear, um, this fear that if we don't uh, inhabit or abide by these societal constructs and norms that we'll die. But the gag is we're going to die anyway. (laughs) Right. Like the the actual gag is no matter what um, we're going to die anyway, because the society is actually based upon it's based upon our exclusion. It's based upon. Yes. Um, So how do we how do we move from that? Honestly, yeah. I mean, our, our PhDs, your suit, <laughs> your straightened hair, they're not going to protect you from bullets. So what? What's the point? But I mean, all right, let's let's keep it moving forward. You were like, all right, well, how can we you know, what can we do? And I think the answer to that is like reclaiming all of these negative stereotypes, owning them, talking about them. And I think that that leads us nicely into our next segment, what we're reading. Yeah, so today we're reading Lady Saw Cuts Loose, Female Fertility Rituals in a Dance Hall in Sound Clash, Jamaican Dance Hall Culture at Large by Carolyn Cooper, who is the baddest, (laughs) I just want to say the baddest. Yes, (laughs) so Dr. Carolyn Cooper, CD, that means she has an order of distinction in Jamaica. She's a professor of literary and cultural studies at the University of the West Indies Mona campus in Jamaica. Uh, she received her PhD from the University of Toronto, my alma mater. Big up, big up. But her work is mainly focused on theorizing and historicizing dancehall culture. So she was in, and she was integral to the creation of the Reggae Studies Unit at UWE, which is the University of West Indies. Her book Sound Clash: Jamaican Dancehall Culture at Large was published in 2004. So. Brendan as our <laughs> as our resident uh, American. What do you yes. know about dancehall? <laughs> Girl, when we were thinking of this idea, I was like, dance hall, what do I know about dance hall? I know I like dancing in the hall. I'm just kidding. Um I I love dancing. I like I like whining. Before I even knew what it was, I was doing it, uh twerking, you know, all of that. Um <laughs> But I really can't say that I'm familiar with the music, dance hall music outside of like Sean Paul, which I feel like it's just, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Popcon. And I like looked it up and I was like, oh, Beanie Man. Like, yeah. okay, there, there are people that I do know <laughs> that I was not 
I didn't know was dance hall and been listening to um, throughout my childhood. And I dance anytime a song comes on. And in recent years, especially since I went to Barbados, um, my 25th year of life, I've been trying to get, yeah, (laughs) crap over. I was out here looking like a true anthro. um, And I was... I would, I've been trying to learn more about different forms of Afro-Caribbean music and dance. And also, as a side note, um, <laughs> Google Drake is not a dance hall artist. Oh, goodness. Um, I Google because I was like, let me see what I know. And I Googled dance hall and Drake's name for sure popped up. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an affront to me and my homegirls. We are upset oh, about geez. it. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all right. So we've got, you know, Vibes Cartel. We've got... Shensia, um, we've got, who else have we got? Alkaline, I'm just trying to, Movado, all of these people. All right, these are, <laughs> these are kinds of like the songs that I have mostly on my playlist. Every time they come on, of course, I'm winding up myself, which my mom would never want to see. Actually, she hey. thinks it's cute now that I'm older, but I think when I was younger, she wasn't <laughs> having it. <laughs> She's like, oh, wow, you can dance. <laughs> Because I, I mean, I, I used to not be able to dance. I, I'll just admit it. I will tell you all how I learned how to dance. <laughs> Ooh, I want to know. I'm, I'm um, so there is a movie. It is called Dance All Queen. <laughs> and I basically I think I've seen that. I, I basically watched it maybe five or six times over and over right before my 13th birthday because I was going to go to this party. <laughs> I wanted to be able to dance and so it's just like okay so she moves like on the rhythm so let me also say that my my dad can't dance my mom's best friend likes to say how my dad is like knock me in kyan dance (laughs) and my mom doesn't really dance (laughs) so naturally this uh (laughs) this was downloaded to me um Um, baby Alyssa over here (laughs) but now you've seen me out okay I can yeah, we can, was okay. Yeah. I'm not gonna say too much, but we no. was out here, like we yes. was out here precisely, precisely. I'm still not the In best Harlem. dancer, but I do love it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, anyways, I just I love that we're talking about Carolyn Cooper. Um, I read her in undergrad because some of the Besides psychology, I actually majored in equity studies. And so I took most of my courses in sociology and Caribbean history with one professor. She was. Fan, she is fantastic and she was probably she was my first and probably only black professor black woman professor I think up until my PhD so I took like four courses with her wow. yeah she's she's fantastic um and so I read I read some of Carolyn Cooper's work in her uh 20th century popular culture and history in the Caribbean course. <laughs> I still remember to this day. Um, so yeah. So and, and one of the things that I, I'm really happy about is that I think Carolyn Cooper is very aligned with what we're trying to do with the podcast. So mm-hmm. in Jamaica, when you when you are um, promoted to professor, you give an inaugural professorial lecture. And she gave hers in Jamaican Patois. So that's the native tongue for a lot of Jamaicans. It would it was broadcast around the country. And she said that, you know, to this day, people still stop her on the street and they're like, you know, Minoyo. <laughs> and she's like, oh, maybe, you, you know, I write some stuff in the newspaper. And, and they're like, no, 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 I've seen your lecture. 
um, and they talk to her about it. And so it really just shows that when you translate academic discourse into plain or popular language, people will understand and people will engage with it. Um, and really, it's also dope because she was like, nah, like forget all of you middle class and upper class Jamaicans and your politics of respectability. I'm just going to do this in my in my mother tongue, in my native language, so that people can understand. Because Patwa is not seen as, it isn't necessarily seen as respectable, particularly in yeah. academic spaces. Mm. Well, I mean, just from reading this, I could tell sis was, well, with all of it, like, <laughs> she was like, come for me and I will come for you with the quickness. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. I love it. I would say that, like, for me, I was really excited to, this is my introduction to Carolyn Cooper's work. And now I'm, I'm really much more interested in reading more about what she's done and, and honestly just learning more because my, all of my interactions with dance hall music has just literally been, at, you know, at random clubs. So <laughs> this is like, this is it. This is for me. Yes. I'm learning. Yeah, no, we're out, we're out here theorizing. My friend was like, oh, your kids one day in the future they're just going to be so tired of you <laughs> academics theorizing everything like she's, she's, she's jamaican and she was just like there's y'all are theorizing everything wow but in any case so in this essay um you know carolyn cooper she's talking about marion hall formerly known as lady saw i don't know do you know lady saw Mm -hmm. She had, a, I, I want to sing it, but I also don't, but I'm going to do it. She had um, a song called Under the Sycamore Tree. That is a dirty song. <laughs> and another one that's called Chat to Me Back. She's like, chat to me back, chat to me back. No? No, I had to, <laughs> see, I might have to put this on the playlist. Yes. Mm. Yeah, uh, lady, lady Saw. And so we're just going to refer to her as as lady saw just for consistency with the article but yeah so anyway so she was the first um female dance hall dj which is what the vocalists in dance hall are called uh to be certified triple platinum and to win a grammy and so in 2015 she was baptized she became a minister and so she's called minister marion hall now and she has a new career in gospel but you know just for consistency we'll still revert to her wow. as lady saw recognizing that she is minister marion hall now um, but prior to her rebirth, <laughs> she was, she was known for her slackness. And so slackness you can think of as like being the opposite of respectability. It's the antithesis of, you know, high culture, the capital C culture. Um, it's almost exclusively slackness is almost ex exclusively sexual when it's used in, in the Jamaican way. So it means lascivious, lewd. In the Dictionary of Jamaican English, it's specifically gendered, so it means a woman of loose morals. And, you know, this kind of goes back to what Wilson wrote, that, like, women are the guardians of public and private morality, right? Right. And, like, slackness, I, and I said, I said so American when I said that, I'm sure, slackness. Um, I've heard the term in, in songs by, like, Preeti, is Preeti, mm -hmm. am I pronouncing that? Okay, Preeti and Destra. Um, <laughs> And so when I was preparing to go to Barbados, I was listening to a lot of like um, songs that were played like Carnival, you know, like DJ, Private Ryan's playlist and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so uh, I came across Lucy, which is one of Destra's songs. And she talks about just like winding up in things mm -hmm. and her slackness and enjoying Carnival. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that 
especially from Cooper's reading of dance hall, like her whole thing about dance hall being a celebration of Mm. women and that centers black women and their fertility. And like, I kind of like calling it into this history of African fertility rights um, and turning it back to something that celebrates the agency of women's bodies. Yeah. I just was like, girl, Snaps all around, <laughs> claps all around, air horns. I'm here for it. Um, and <laughs> like, pew, 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 pew. Um, like thinking about us women, right? It's we're just not holders of what Cooper calls airy fairy, which when I saw that I died. <laughs> airy fairy, um, Judeo-Christian value systems. Like we're actually celebrating our bodies and ourselves by using these same elements, right? Our hips, our thighs, you know, Mm -hmm. our waist, right? Things that we're told are unholy that should be covered unworthy. We actually celebrate those through dance hall, um, through the music and through the dancing itself. And so the fact that she's able to read dance hall as an act that puts black women's bodies at the center, I was like, "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm." (laughs) yeah, I mean, people are really, taking back and reclaiming a body that is not considered beautiful and making it beautiful. And that is, you know, her interpretation, I think is really cool in terms of that. But, you know, she's also really celebrating the cunning and subversion of slackness. So she's just like, forget all of your respectability politics And here's what this really means. Like here is, or here's an interpretation of what this can mean and why women get dressed up, get dolled up, go to the dance hall and wind up them pum pum in front of people. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, it's fun. It's enjoyable. I mean, when I'm, Mm -hmm. if I'm out and I'm whining, I'm not doing it to attract a man. Like I'm doing it because it feels like my ability to move my waist and my hips, that's my birthright right there. Like it is (laughs) a celebration of this physical capacity. And so much of Western feminism, they conceive of women as victims of the male gaze. And so in dancehall culture, you're really dressing up to be seen, not just by men, but by everyone. And so what if we flip that narrative and we thought of it as like capturing the gaze rather than being captured by it, you know? There's a lot to be said here about like feminism that's particularly situated. And Cooper's really like critiquing the hell out of people who were critiquing her work and especially anthropologists. She's basically saying, you're imposing these Western interpretations of dance hall of women's, of Jamaican women's bodies and lyrics and music and, and joy. And you're actually imposing your own gaze, but we have our own and it's different. And I think that's quite white an indictment yeah i totally agree like i feel like yeah i mean how do i even express this like even the moments where she's talking about lady saw using these quote-unquote vulgar lyrics and she points to the fact that like women enjoy sex too right like Mm -hmm. we can we can talk about the things that actually make us feel good without it being something that pleases men. Like, sure, men get pleasure from it. And also, she's like, what's so bad about that? Right? Like, what's so bad about people getting pleasure from music? Right? It's rooted in these kind of 
purity, airy fairy, right? These like <laughs> purity, mm-hmm. um, these purity values that should not, especially should not be an anthropological text about yeah. this music, right? Like if it, if anything should not have it, it should be these anthropological texts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she really takes down <laughs> some of the anthropologists and their critiques of dancehall and of her work. So like she talks a lot about Norman Stalzoff, uh, the late Obiageli Lake, And that was something that, that was actually something I found really interesting because she talks about one academic who admitted she like approached him in private and he admitted that he oversimplified her arguments in some of his work. But then, you know, he proceeded to reproduce the same critique, the same oversimplification in two more articles. And so he knew that his readers, they weren't going to go back. They they didn't know her work and they weren't going to go back and read it. And then others, you know, other uh, critiquers, <laughs> other people uh, critiques, yes, <laughs> <laughs> other critics of her work, they were drawing up these straw man arguments, straw person arguments, as you know, she likes to say, um, you know, misinterpreting her and then going on to offer the solution that's their own innovation. And I feel like this is something that's so common with women academics and scholars from the global south. Their work is just like co-opted and misrepresented by Western scholars because Western scholars aren't as familiar with non-Western work. Yeah, like I wonder, I don't know, I wonder how much academia would be enhanced by Cooper's, her methodology or even just like Mm. the way that she writes where she's just like, I'm going to directly take on what you say about me and I'm not going to mince words, right? It it almost reads as if you're sitting in a room with two people in the conversation and it reads very black to me though, too, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of this like, not necessarily anti-professionalism, but this, this realm of actually, I'm going to engage you and meet you where you are um, and what you're saying and say like, no, what you're saying is not correct. This is what I mean. And you're actually mischaracterizing me. You're mischaracterizing these women through this Western lens that you put on to dance hall. And I think that like, I don't know, I, I stand. I just stand. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, I loved what she was doing with all of her, you know, with her just taking, taking on these critiques, like sentence by sentence. I was just... I loved it. And I mean, one of the things is that in, in Jamaica, like wordplay is so important. And so she really, I mean, she pays attention to the lyrics. Some of her critics are like, well, all she does is pay attention to the words and, you know, not to uh, the dance moves and the culture and the history. And she was just like, I'm not writing the definitive history of dance hall. I literally say in the introduction that I'm interested in the lyrics because these are the ones that are always misrepresented, misunderstood. And Wordplay is just so, so important. But okay, I think I feel like we should <laughs> rewind a little bit and help everyone kind of like understand, you know, what she's talking about. So she, she does two things in this essay. So first, she's really contextualizing the space of dancehall as a celebration of the female body and the event almost as a ritual that can be connected to the continuity of West African traditions and fertility rituals. And so the dance hall queen and the event, it kind of evokes the Orisha of Oshun and Oya. And so I don't know, Oshun, I think people are, may, might be a little bit more familiar with, especially if they've, you know, watched Beyonce's Lemonade and such. And so 
through this evocation, they kind of assert the beauty of their bodies in a culture where black women's bodies are not valued. But that said, I, I do think that we should always be careful about these kinds of like cultural continuity arguments because they often get taken up in one of two ways. One, to essentialize the other and other certain aspects of culture, or it's kind of wielded against different groups of people to delegitimize or challenge the authenticity of their culture as it exists in the present. So it's like, oh, the Maasai use cell phones? Well, that doesn't seem very authentic. They weren't using cell phones in Kenya right. hundred years ago. Right. Like it's it's usually levied against uh indigenous people and yeah. saying like you can't really be indigenous because to be indigenous means that you're primitive and mm-hmm. you know primitive, quote unquote primitive people don't do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, but we're all here in the year 2020. <laughs> right. So Let's stop. Um, but yeah, like I absolutely agree. And I want to affirm that these cultural continuity arguments can be harmful, even at times in histories of anthropology where they've used them to kind of justify that Black American people have a culture, a distinct culture, mm. which was a period of time in like the, I would say the 20th century, the mid 20th century, where like Melville, Herkovitz, and Mm-hmm. Zorno Hurston and other anthropologists were, were doing Black folklore work in order to prove that Black American people had a distinct culture, which mm-hmm. they could see where it was more easily visible um, in the Caribbean or in, in the continent of Africa because they were trying to basically make an argument about how Black folks are distinct from white folks, even mm-hmm. though everyone knew that that was the truth, right? And, and right. I was saying um, it's like situated in how much African quote unquote was like left in, mm-hmm. in you, in your culture. Um, and so what I liked about Cooper's work was that she situates dance hall culture, like as you mentioned, kind of within this, um, what I would call like a matrix of African spirituality mm-hmm. that like, not, I don't want to say legitimates it, but kind of solidifies it and gives it a, an authority to say like this pre-exists the Western gaze, right? Before mm-hmm. you all came and looked at it and said that it was something bad, right? It's it's something that is not only fun and sexy and beautiful, it's, it's something that like actually is older than these Western ideas of purity. Um, and then I also really like the description of Oshun as a woman who has numerous lovers um, mm-hmm. and is like the erotic personified. Like I, I did not watch Beyonce's performance where she kind of embodies Oshun, mm-hmm. um, but I, I mean, I did see Lemonade, and I think about the ways that even in her performance, right, that that piece of Oshun being erotic personified kind of gets washed away by the beauty. Right, the mm-hmm. beauty piece of Ashun um, and the fertility piece. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that kind I of like bind, that. that bind that we're allowed to be beautiful and fertile, but not necessarily quote unquote promiscuous. Mm. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I feel like Ashun also has, even though I think she's she's the god of water, she's the Orisha of water or of the ocean. Um, she's she's very fiery like has a lot of anger and so hold up is also you know beyonce's embodying oshun and hold up you know when she's walking around in that yellow dress and she's um 
you know, breaking everything with, with her uh, hot sauce. Oh, the bats. Yes. I was like, wait, how's that? the bats? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Oya is, is, you know, she's she's the Orisha of uh, of masquerades and of female power. So I think Cooper kind of, she she uses both of those so Orisha to um, understand the dance hall. Um, yeah. And so the second thing that she's doing, she's, you know, challenging these like Jamaican, particularly the respectable readings and American readings of Lady Saw as, as a victim of internalized misogyny. And she kind of shows that as a female dancehall DJ, she's taking control of the, of the mic. She assumes this power and she speaks back to the, to the male DJ. So her body is not a site of domination. It's one of pleasure. And that I want to mark because we're going to talk about that when we come to our what's in the world. But yeah, so I think that Cooper, she really valorizes the the erotic dancing and the instructive lyrics. Like Lady Saw is telling men what she wants to make herself feel good. Like, why are we going to, why are we going to moralize that? Right. Like, don't, don't we deserve to feel good? Um, And it connected to what you (laughs) <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, sex, is, sex is all about, you know, this uh, this heterosexual imagination of sex is something mm-hmm. that, you know, pleases men. Um, and so I really like when Cooper says, um, she says, self-righteous critics of the sexualized representation of women in Jamaican dancehall culture who claim to speak unequivocally on behalf of quote unquote oppressed women often fail to acknowledge the pleasure that women themselves consciously take in the salacious lyrics of both male and female DJs who affirm the sexual power of women. So yeah, like everything is not always oppression. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's like, actually this is pleasurable for me to hear from this rapper. I mean, sometimes rappers use violent language. And so we're not talking about, of course, like the violent language around like killing mm-hmm. or raping women. But when a rapper is like, you know, ludicrous, like I want to lily lick you from your head to your toes. Like I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> do that thing. I, you know, I mean, that's actually, make, I wanted to make, ask you about that because you yeah. know, your, your work is, is about violence against black women and girls. And I think a critic of Cooper's work would be like, why are you reading uh, a song that's literally called Stab Up My Meat? So Stab Up My Meat. Uh, and the meat in this instance is uh, <laughs> a metaphor for Lady Saw's vagina. Um, you know, how is it that you could read that and not think this is violence? Uh, this is glorifying violence. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't believe that women have agency and can use language that, yes, if you're looking from the outside, it may seem violent, um, but like can use violent language to actually describe what they want or what they need. And I mean, what, that's like the the words that they use in dance hall, right? They're not, she's not making up some new language and going about and being like, oh, I'm gonna bring my white feminist principles to dance hall. Like, I'm gonna <laughs> say, instead of saying, you know, stab up your meats, I'm gonna say, put your, you know, insert beep, 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 beep here. Like, you know, like whatever. And so it's just mm-hmm. like, I think people 
tend to take agency away from survivors um, and say that survivors, because you've experienced this racist or sexist or whatever violence, like you should not want to feel or experience or talk about certain things in certain ways. And it's like, actually, no, I still have the agency to want or feel however I want and feel like the act of violence does not take that away from me. Um, and right. you saying that it should is actually you perpetuating, right. Um, and right. perpetrating another type of violence on me. Mm-hmm. So I think also too, that like people just get so wrapped up in, in respectability politics and purity culture mm-hmm. that they can't recognize women, um, as sexual beings. And so it's just like, you, we're unable to see that even though a woman has had her agency taken from her through, um, you know, through and some some of my interlocutors have been raped, right, or mm-hmm. been in, in, in situations where they've been sexually assaulted. That doesn't mean that they no longer desire to be seen as sexy. Right. Doesn't mean that they no longer desire to like have sex with people. Um, and something that also just an aside that I thought was really interesting from Cooper's article was when she talked about like this kind of redefinition of virgin Mm. where we kind of take it away from this like Christian purity thing where it says that your sexuality or your literally your body parts belong to the church, to Mm. God, to your father. Um, But actually making virgin mean that these things belong to myself um, and that, as a virgin, I can freely interact with whomever I choose. And mm-hmm. so virginity then being something that, that is stoked in agency, right? Like something that I choose um, yeah. that doesn't even necessarily need to be given away um, mm-hmm. as these like Christian purity circles will try to say. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, that's literally something I had just heard. I've been listening to uh, this podcast, Where Should We Begin by Esther Perel. She's She's a, an, an erotic or a sexual couples therapist. I mean, she's a couples therapist, but she does deal a lot in the erotic. Um, and so she was counseling one couple and they were raised very much in a very conservative church. And so they had early on in their marriage, a lot of issues with sex and sexuality because the woman, she said that you know, when she was a child, her sexuality was her parents. She has Indian parents. Mm. And then growing up, her sexuality became the churches. And then she got married mm. and her sexuality was her husband's. And so having ownership and agency of your body, of your sexuality, I think is in many senses revolutionary, particularly in our airy fairy Judeo-Christian society that we live in. Absolutely. And... I think that will bring us to, I mean, the topic of today, yo. <laughs> which we're so excited about. <laughs> which we're like literally so excited about. <sighs> so, um, yeah. So we're going to talk about that in our next segment, which is what in the world? What in like, the world? Like what? 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 Um, <laughs> where we talk about kind of this kind of mainstream application of the word of the day. And so today we are talking about one of my new favorite songs. Everyone's <laughs> new favorite song. <laughs> WAP 
by Cardi B and Megan the Stallion. And Megan, we love you, girl. That's why we brought you back this episode. Yes, we love absolutely. you. Absolutely. We are gonna talk about something else, <laughs> but we we're like, we've got to talk about WAP. Are we gonna say what WAP stands for? You know what? Y'all, if y'all don't know what WAP stands for, just Google it. <laughs> just Google it. It actually means world and peace. I'm just kidding. Um <laughs> <laughs> But um, I mean, Cardi and Meg have been getting so much hate. One, uh, oh my goodness, this tweet was what like, it sent me into a spiral. Um, Deanna Lorraine, Deanna for Congress. Uh, she said, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion just set the entire female gender back by 100 years with their disgusting and vile WAP song. What? And I was just like, She's like, the Democrats support this trash and depravity. <laughs> and I'm like, so I posted, I tweeted, um, if Taylor Swift released a similar song, sure, may, okay, may, I, I will concede that there would be some, you know, there would be some outrage, but people most certainly would not call her vile and disgusting. What, Taylor Swift? Like, <laughs> Absolutely she not. She wouldn't do it, I, but they wouldn't call her those things. They would be like, they oh, wouldn't. Wow, she's really like saying all these things. And it's like, uh, Miley Cyrus did this and nobody was like, oh my gosh, she's vile and disgusting. So mm -hmm. I think that this is definitely an example of misogynoir. For sure. It's like, it's For not even the nastiest song sure. out there. But It's really but. not. Like I grew up, okay, Southern, Southern <laughs> music here. I grew up in South Carolina. And if you couldn't tell by the way I sound, well, that's why I grew up. Um, and like southern rap music like my roommate and i we one of our songs is by lil rue it's called the nasty song mm -hmm. and like <laughs> if you think wop wasn't it like the song is literally called the nasty song um and it but of course it's like normalized right for men to talk about what they want to do with their bodies and with mm -hmm. women but for women yeah. to be like hey i have world and peace and you know <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I have world of peace and like this world of peace needs this in order to, you know, continue to be world in peace. Um, I just, oh gosh, I was lit I mean, from, from the beginning. Like I loved it from the beginning. And so, I mean, that was a comment from the women, the men were, they were on some other stuff. It's just like men want women to be pure and submissive and chaste to be a good girl but to also do the things mm -hmm. that they want in bed so it's basically like they're saying have sex with only me but don't enjoy it so as soon as a woman's like enjoying sex as soon as black women are centering their pleasure rather than the male gaze men can't stand it they can't stand it no absolutely not it. like what's like oh my gosh i think about that <laughs> the quote-unquote outrage that happened when Beyonce released Drunken Love. Mm. And Drunken Love was not even like a Pleasure Me song. It was kind of just like, me and my husband enjoy doing these things together while mm. we're drunk. And <laughs> people were just like, all the Christian women were like, well, we already knew Beyonce was the devil, but now we really know. Like, oh my goodness. You need to talk about this with your husband and not us. Um and I actually heard on the radio because my partner likes to listen to the radio. Um, so we were listening to this talk show and this woman called in and she was just like, 
yeah, I heard the new song and it's cool, but my husband, he didn't really appreciate it. And it's like, nobody asked you to get on the radio and announce that you were married. Like, I'm happy mm -hmm. for you. I'm glad mm -hmm. that you endured, you wanted to endure that indentured servantship. <laughs> but I know, like, sis, nobody asked you what your husband thought about the song or, um, or that the fact that you mm -hmm. thought that it was okay to just like, this is only a conversation that women should be having with their husbands. Yeah. Some of us don't want husbands, mm -hmm. um, at least not, you know, in the in this like cisgendered heterosexual kind of way. Yeah. And I, you know, I will admit I used to be on the twerk team as a teenager. Hey. Um, <laughs> I I was I was at the parties. I hope my mom. Okay, I really don't want to listen. But like, <laughs> I was there um, at the parties as a teenager, and this was the music that really made my childhood music like this. Yeah. Um, and so listening to it was just like brought me back. But you're definitely what you're talking about is like with men who want these pure women. Um, it's this purity policing mm -hmm. that's like really not at all what people want. Like, you don't want a woman who's not going to do what you want to do in bed, right? Or they might, they, they'll want, they'll want her in the streets, but they'll find someone else for the sheets. Right. And, and it's just like, also I was thinking about like reading these Christian blogs where this Christian woman mm. was like, all the black Christian women who are hating on this song hate themselves most likely and hate mm. the fact that they subscribe themselves to a religion that doesn't allow them to experience pleasure mm. and what would it mean as black christian women for us to embrace that god wants us to feel pleasure in this lifetime i was like if that mm. if black women black christian women embrace that the black christianity industrial complex would fall apart mm. um like so, so I'm in this, I'm in this group in a Facebook group, um, <laughs> just a really great one. Um, but or actually, was this in a group or was this, I think it might've been a comment on Instagram, but this is a, a black woman as far as I know, because who knows on these internets. Um, but she said that because the rap industry is, is run by white men, WAP is the worst display of the Jezebel Sapphire tropes and if you want to learn more about those tropes, you can check out our episode two where we talk about archetypes. And then she said that Sarah Barton, Bartman must be rolling over in her grave. And of course, like you can counter that this was a song that was made for a strip club. Women, they play the song or the DJ plays the song and they take men's money. So <laughs> it's, it's like liberation in a system of bondage, like capitalizing on the, on the male gaze. And, you know, of course, of course, we can concede that in, in some instances, commercial sex workers, they're disempowered and caught in a cycle of exploitation. But that's not what we're talking about here. Just like Lady Saw in WAP, Cardi and Meg are talking about pleasure because that's how a WAP happens. <laughs> Look, world and peace can that's only how, happen in yes, pleasure. I'm just yes, exactly. It is very, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> And it's very pleasurable for to, to have mm -hmm. world and peace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like, should they not be free to express that and to choose whatever metaphor they want to choose? Like if Lady Saw wants to choose meat and Cardi and um, <laughs> Cardi and Meg want to choose like the garage and 
all these other great like big Mac metaphors. Truck. Big Mac truck <laughs> right in his little garage. <laughs> um, so yeah, are they not like free to choose these metaphors as they want to, rather than them being like victims of patriarchy? So I think that what we're seeing is like all people pay attention to is is the body. There's like a complete objectification of the body when people are thinking about like how dance halls, how dancers and dance hall move, how uh, Cardi B and Meg and Normani, how they twerk and how they move their bodies in, in the video. It's just like, what's the problem? What's the problem? That's their body. They're, they're owning, they're taking ownership of it. And all of this music is written deliberately. It's not like we're in a time where there's some, there's some man out there writing this song for them. Like these, they're writing their songs. Maybe people are involved as well, but like they're coming up with these ideas and songs and, and metaphors as they wish. So why are we going to hate on them for wanting to express how they enjoy themselves? Right. And like, also just this, their job, mm-hmm. it's their literal job. Like it's not their job to raise your children it's not their yes. job to be your role models. It's not. And also, why would you put that on a 27-year-old and a 20, what, Meg is 25? Cardi's mm. 27, is right? She? So, like, wow. yeah. <laughs> Cardi, <feel> B aged. <laughs> and I, Cardi B and I are the same age. Like, It's like, yo, why are you entrusting your children's well-being to mm-hmm. strangers? to these strange black women one and like and by strange i mean not unusual but like you do not know them and like that i think that speaks more to to your parenting than to anything else mm-hmm. like the fact that you expect for someone you don't even know to be a role model to your child is is ridiculous but the but it's massage noir because you expect a black woman to do it mm-hmm. um and so it's like a lot of that was coming out too of just like, well, I wouldn't want my children to listen to this, you know, world in peace on the radio. And I wouldn't want to, <laughs> you know, instill that into my young daughters. And it's like, but y'all play two chains and y'all play mm-hmm. all this music. Like listen, I was when I was a kid, I was singing the song, that song by uh I think it's called RL, the group is RL or Next or something, and they had two clothes. It's like, baby, when you're grinding, I get so excited. Oh, so excited. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was listening to that. I was singing My Neck, My Back. I was singing Nice and Slow. I didn't I'm know dead. what I was You were singing My Neck. <laughs> my Neck. I mean, I was singing the clean version. <laughs> but I mean, like, my point is that you know, we were listening to some filth and we didn't grow up to be sexual deviants or anything like, and even if we did, so what? Like, as long as it's consensual, as long as it's safe, like, who cares? All of this, I don't want my daughter to grow up to be a hoe is just like more purity policing but more purity policing one of the things that i found really i i loved this tweet you kind of have to read it because some of the words are in capital and he's like really stressing these words but um box top b-o-c-x-t-o-p on twitter he was like i'm a straight man i can't stand wop and hearing women talk about their bodies <laughs> which i'm attracted to I only want to hear other men talk about their dicks. 
and how good they are at sex. I'm a heterosexual man. <laughs> and I was just like, he's, he's clearly being sarcastic. Okay. And it's just right. like interesting that all of these men who identify as heterosexual, they don't want to hear women talk about their bodies, but they don't mind hearing Lil Wayne talk about what he's going to do to to so-and-so and all of this other stuff. They don't get all up in arms about it. So it's interesting. He's calling out this kind of like homosociality. That's what it yeah, is. Yeah, the homosociality, homoeroticism. CJ Pasco, who's like a sociologist, did a whole study on like high school boys. And it's like, in order to prove that you are straight, there are certain things that you have to do um, that are actually what some people would read as like gay, quote unquote, gay acts. Mm. But it's like, it's to prove that you're straight. So this like compulsive heterosexuality mm. that you perform, that's actually underlying, like, or overlining or underlining this like, this like ho- performed homosexuality. It's, it's, it's just so interesting to me. Yeah. Like, you know, as, as my friends would say, the straights are not okay. Um, they're not okay. <laughs> not- and yeah, we need to ask, like, that's the thing. I saw that tweet and I died. Cause I was just like, that's literally what it is. Like y'all want to hear about, well, not just, you know, men doing things with their dicks, but also just like, but just like, um, like men violating women in certain yeah. ways. Like that's mm-hmm. what you want to hear. You don't want to hear someone taking control and taking power over that um, because that's just like, that would go up against, buck up against these kind of constructed norms around like patriarchal power, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I mean, back that ass up was my jam. <laughs> that was your jam. It's still the jam. That was my jam. That comes I on mean, in the club. <laughs> Not the club. I'm, I'm hitting a split like it's over Listen, um, I've, I've hit a split or two in my lifetime so <laughs> i mean i mean i might not be able to do it anymore but last summer catch me could have caught me out here like but my favorite line well one of my favorite lines from um from wap was <laughs> when cardi was like i don't cook i don't clean but i still got that ring and i was oh, like wow wow um let me sit with this because i i cook and clean i don't have a ring no um i was just like listen (laughs) i was like the pick me's must have cried when they heard that song so for those of you who are like what's a pick me a pick me is usually a woman who has like eh, some internalized misogyny she'll so she'll kind of act the way that she thinks women are supposed to act like what's expected of them so you know and she'll do that in order to be chosen or picked by by usually a man so she's that woman who will be like i'm not like the other girls i cook i clean i treat my man like a king blah 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 but the ass is still single (laughs) yeah like catered to you (laughs) personified basically (laughs) um and twitterfied and so but it's just like sis we all as um sukiana said you come at home and you're you know your vagina is wet, but your rent is still due. And <laughs> so I, like, it's like, Sugiana's like, why are you going to demonize me? Mm-hmm. Demonize Cardi, demonize Meg, but your rent is still due. My okay. rent not due. So mm-hmm. let's like, let's talk about it. <laughs> Don't waste your pretty. Don't waste your pretty. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, speaking of that, I, I actually hate listen to this podcast and I'm not going to name it, but I just listened to it because 
it angers me. And I'm just like, I can't believe that men think this way. And they're, you know, so they're these two like young in their twenties, uh, black Christian men. And so in one of their recent episodes, they were talking about Ruby Rose and she made a hundred thousand dollars on OnlyFans in two days. And it was just by, she posted some pictures that were already on Instagram. And I was just like, get that bag girl. Just scam get these it. men. <laughs> scam and, these and, men. And share it with um, me, please. Exactly. And so one of the things they said was like, why would a girl even go to college if she can make that much money by taking off her clothes in the comfort of her own home? And I was just like, y'all mm. hate women. Like they talk about how much they want to be in a relationship and be married, but I'm just like, y'all don't like women. Mm-mm. They might be attracted to women, but they don't like them. And I, and so, I mean, this is the kind of like logic that underlies there being more value on women's bodies and youth and their looks than on anything else. So in this book, it's called Bullshit Jobs um, by David Graeber. He's an anthropologist. Um, he was really involved with the Occupy movement. And I think he got, you know what, I'm not even going to, no rumors. All right. But yes, he was very involved with that. And he's an anthropologist. And he actually interviews uh, a professor who was an erotic dancer throughout her PhD. And she was like, I earned more as a stripper than I do now as a professor. And it really just speaks to the way that like in a patriarchal capitalist society, we place more value on a woman's looks than their minds. And it just, it blows my mind. You know, I just realized that we said dick and we didn't say pussy. Which also speaks to the ways that, which like, yeah, like we mm. internalize these words is dirty. Um, I mean, to be fair, I was quoting somebody. <laughs> I was quoting <laughs> I know, but then I thought about how I just said, I just said dick um, without saying pussy. So anyway, world in peace. Um, because Cardi said they had to censor their own video. But we could have said make- wet and gushy this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Wet and gushy. Mm, 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 okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, the expectation that these women like protect other people's children, it makes no, it makes, first of all, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that is so, that's such a role that is imposed on black women um, in, in various ways. I think that that's what we're seeing right now with, Kamala Harris, she's the candidate for vice president with Biden. Um, and I think it's a very, it's a multi-layer, it's a multi-layered situation for several reasons, but on the note of like the tasks that we, that we demand from black women, there was this comment on Twitter by Malini Ranganathan. And she said, Kamala Harris's lineage is one of upper caste Tamil civil servants and diplomats like my own. She will have to work to dismantle the taken for granted nature of caste supremacy while also being held accountable to black freedom, reparation, abolitionist and anti-colonial demands. (sighs) Can a black woman just live? No. Can we just live like, can't, why do we have to be responsible for more than our job descriptions? When Biden got his nomination, no one was like, well, he's a white upper class man who will have to work to dismantle classism, ableism, white domination, settler colonialism, and patriarchy, while also being responsible for U.S. imperialism, indigenous genocide, and climate change. Like, 
the person who should have the most added tasks to them, nobody said that. They were just like, let's get him, get Trump out of office, you know? Yeah, I think, I definitely think that Black activists were holding, trying to hold Biden accountable from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, mainstream-wise though, it was always just, yeah, like you're saying, like people were not trying to task him with all of these extra responsibilities because his foil is, you know, the current carrot in office and like trying to make sure that he is removed. Um, yeah. And I was, I was just like troubled by some of the, also some of the discourse around, um, and oh my gosh, I keep on calling her Kamala. <laughs> my Southern, like my Southern, this keeps coming out. But yeah, like V, I'm going to say um, VP Harris, uh, just because of this, like this whole thing about black girls having someone who looks like them, quote unquote, in office. That, yeah, that turn of phrase, it, it irks me. I'm still kind of unpacking why. I think it's partly because, you know, not all skin folk are kin folk and we shouldn't just aspire to representation but yeah sorry right. i cut you off <laughs> no, no no i'm just saying like yeah like that irks me too because of course representation does not always mean that someone like as i always be saying like integration is not always activism mm-hmm. and i lost a few twitter followers for that but i just want to <laughs> put that out there um but also just on the truth of that of the truth of the fact that like vp harris does not look like many black girls mm-hmm. right she absolutely does not look like me um and she cannot speak to or speak for people in my community yeah and that's and and that's just the thing about these politics of representation that makes it so messy because as you read right now south asian communities are like vp harris you need to speak to this is that and a third and black Mm -hmm. communities are like yo, you're a cop. You need to speak to your record yeah. as attorney, as attorney general. Like you need to speak to your record of actually putting black trans women in men's prisons and, mm-hmm. and making that a practice in California. And so mm-hmm. it's, and it's like, yes, we need to hold her accountable, but how do we do that without participating in massage noir, right? Without right. Yes. Doing her with all of these additional responsibilities Mm -hmm. um, and expecting for her to quote unquote save us. Cause now the, I don't know if you've seen it, but like these like charges to listen to black women, even the ones you don't really like. And it's like, (laughs) uh, um, I don't really know about that. Um, Yeah. And it's like, I think in Biden's case, like a lot of activists have already written him off, like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a white man. He's not going to listen to us. Yeah. But I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to have the ability to see like her, the heat that she's getting as people trying to hold her accountable while also mm-hmm. trying to temper what I, I can read as some of the like massage noirist. Um, comments that she's getting as well yeah yeah i mean there's definitely that the represent the the politics of representation we can say and then you know for others this is this is a validation of respectability politics right like she did and has done and is doing these things that that fit into mainstream expectations particular and you know by mainstream i mean white (laughs) let's be honest 
and mm-hmm. um, you know she was she was tough on crime. White people looked at, and you know this kind of validates her being appointed um, as the VP candidate. It validates that if you if you walk good, talk good, then you know your life will will be good. You will um, you'll progress in society. You'll move up in the world, and so in that sense, it's like it's very much a win for these black elites who think that you know representation is the revolution. Just having someone there mm. is going to solve all of our problems, but it's not. It's not, and it's also just like yeah, how much of her walking good and talking good is because she is a mixed race black woman with straight hair Mm. particular body type particular education background Mm -hmm. right like how much of her access to these spaces right is is because of how she looks and how she carries herself which does not like and because of who she is right it would not allow a woman like me to be able to walk through those same doors Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, doors that she can open, I can't open it. I mean, some of them doors, like I don't, right. I'm good. Like I don't want to <laughs> open. Like I'm good. Where I, I'm actually gonna stay in my lane, right? right? But like, if I wanted to do politics, if I wanted to, for some reason, invest myself in this country, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't do it in the way that she's doing it, right? Which people are talking about Stacey Abrams and like how Stacey Abrams was excluded because of her skin color and her hair texture and um, the fact that she's like a fat black woman that excluded her from being even Mm -hmm. being considered as a VP candidate um, because she didn't fit a certain type of black that could be seen as like agreeable or amenable to this pretend audience that the Democrats have, right? Because they're not actually vying for the folks who actually continually vote for them. They're trying to reach these moderates and these centrists. Um, But the moderates and the centrists, we know who they vote for. They show us each election. Word. (laughs) But one one of the things, at least in terms of like popular reactions to uh, Kamala Harris was that like, these whites don't know how to deal with mixed racedness when it's not entangled with whiteness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like people are just like, oh, but but is she a is she you know is she a black woman? Is she an Indian American woman? Is she you know how do we how do we talk about which is I mean, how do we talk about her race, ethnicity, her culture, her background? It's just like, well, do we really need? to talk about it that much. And I think a lot of people, particularly in like, like Germany and, you know, different parts of Europe, they're like, we would never talk about a candidate in this way. We would never talk about the black vote or the Asian vote. And they find it very disturbing that in the U S this is something that's just like so commonly easily said on, on the news. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting that when whiteness isn't a part of being mixed race, it's like people don't know how to how to understand or conceptualize it, at least in the popular, you know, in the popular media. And of course, you know, Kamala Harris, she's half Jamaican. So that's why we wanted to throw her in here. Or at least I wanted to, because this is news to Brendan. <laughs> it is. I, I'm like, what? You know, I, my mother's side of the family, they're Bahamian. Um, at least my great grandfather was Bahamian. And so I, that's the only connection I have really. But 
if you didn't know, Bahamians are actually um, among, at least among Caribbean folks, they're like the first to acclimate and kind of become subsumed into Black American culture. Hmm. I learned that um, a couple of summers ago and people are like, yeah, the Bahamians moved to like South Carolina and after one generation, they're like, yeah, we're Black American. Whereas a lot of other Black immigrant communities hold on to their identities longer. Right. I don't know what that means. I don't know why, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I think that's cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, I like Jamaicans. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> So yeah, so she is, her mother, I believe, is Indian and her father is Jamaican. And so, of course, you have these birther people coming out who are just like, well, if something happens to Joe Biden, she can't even become president. We have to, we have to check the status of her parents. She could, she's just an anchor baby, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right, Hmm. y'all, the 14th Amendment has already dealt with this. Deuces. Like, (laughs) I don't understand. And also the current president... I mean, current carrot in office. His <laughs> parents are from where? Alrighty. Well, um, I don't even forward. know. I don't, I don't know. even know. <laughs> no, I don't think. I don't think they're from the U.S. Though, but who knows? I don't know anything. I don't. I am not a gardener. I don't know anything about carrots, so I can't <laughs> even really tell you where they come from. So. Mm-mm. That's enough airspace for yes, absolutely. <laughs> for I was gonna say we can't end on that. All this to be said, if um, VP Harris comes out about um, her wet and gushy, we know that she is trying <laughs> to appeal to a larger audience, um, and I just hope that she also throws in some dance hall moves. Yes, in that promotional video, precisely. Um, in addition to some, you know, Indian moves as well to speak to all sides of her heritage if she so chooses you know there's some really good (laughs) there's some actually um some great i don't know like fusion music that you know with uh indian bhangra music and jamaican Mm. dance hall music so if she includes some of that in in her campaign videos i'm not gonna be mad at it (laughs) i'm gonna be i'm gonna be dancing right along all right. Well, I think we'll just call it call it a day. End it on that note because this is a long one, and so long one, a long one. It's like an hour and fifty minutes, probably <laughs> almost two Ooh. hours. So someone right today. Um, but we just <laughs> want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you to everyone who supported us in non-monetary and monetary ways. Just knowing that our students are listening and discussing yes. and people are like co-signing our interpretations of the texts, leaving us reviews on iTunes and sharing our podcast with friends and family. It's been especially heartening um, and it really has motivated me to keep putting in the work and doing a lot of work on this. So yeah, like doing less of a side job and more like <laughs> a very large portion of, of my week. So yeah like this takes a lot of time and energy for for both of us um and also our transcriptionists thank you um for listening and doing the work that y'all do 
And our students, like shout out to y'all. We love y'all. We appreciate you for chiming in and letting us know. So just wanted to shout y'all out again. It's really <laughs> like really touches my heart um, to, to just like hear y'all's feedback and things like that. But be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Instagram. We are Zora's Daughters. On Twitter, we are Zora's underscore daughters Mm -hmm. and send us your feedback we take dms we are getting emails now um you know email us zora's daughters pod at gmail.com um oh and check out our website and check our website (laughs) our brand yes new website um thank you Alyssa. Alyssa <laughs> is a magician Alyssa is a well first of all y'all Alyssa is a gift okay a gift <laughs> thank she you she is the gift she has a gift I all I know how to do is type on a word document <laughs> and some days that does not even work out for me so she is able to do all this computer stuff and I, I know I sound like an old lady but she's doing all this computer <laughs> stuff and I I really love it and appreciate it so shout out to you Alyssa you. definitely um we're just excited to grow and excited to have such a wonderful audience so thank you all so much thank you it's zorasdaughters.com go visit it leave us a little review follow everything do us all right do don't don't do us do you do you and yes and let us know if you have any comments about respectability if you think that Mm -hmm. we could have continued the conversation somewhere um drop us a line let us know yeah thanks all right y'all be kind to yourselves bye bye